The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. This morning, we are in Revelation chapter 11. We're continuing our study through this incredible book, uh, and we're in this pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet. We'll be looking at these mysterious two witnesses. So again, it's Revelation 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 14. Again, that's Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. Let's hear the word of our Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because of these two prophets." And they had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can spend this moment together sitting under your word. Lord, um, it's a difficult text with much that is hard to understand. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us think biblically, that your Holy Spirit would help me to teach this faithfully and clearly, and that you would show us just how relevant it really is even for us right now, today, that you would form us, you would form our perspective, and encourage us to live more and more faithfully for Jesus Christ no matter the cost. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
So we are continuing our study through the book of Revelation and encounter another passage that can be very difficult to understand. Uh, in our verses today, we've got this measuring of a temple, fire-breathing prophets killed by a beast, and strange number patterns all piled up in one vision. So here's these important questions. What are we to do with this? What does it have to do with us? As usual, right away there's this interpretive choice we need to face. Are we supposed to look at this more literally as some interpreters have done? Or is it better to see this more symbolically? Well, if this was a literal event, I guess we could assume it hasn't happened yet. It seems like something we might have noticed uh, and if these, are events, if these events are to happen literally in the future, we could wonder, what would this text actually have meant for John's audience 1,900 years ago? could also wonder, if it's meant to be this literal future event, what would it actually mean for your life? On the other hand, what if, this, what if John meant this communication symbolically? What if there is a literal truth we need to take seriously that is best, in this case, communicated by symbols? And what if that truth communicated by these symbols was, was not distant at all from John's original audience? Rather, it was to frame and form their lives for the times they lived in. And in the same way, what if the truth of those symbols is, is not distant from you or from me either? but it's meant to frame and form us so that we can live more faithfully for Jesus today. Well, I think that's the right perspective, the symbolic one. And I want to try to unpack that with you this morning and see five things. First, and this first thing will take most of our time this morning, I want to unpack these images, try to understand what John intended to communicate with these symbols And uh, that first point is really just getting our minds around, what's the main idea of this passage? What's the main point? Second, I think as we do that, four themes will emerge from that main point. Four things that that are meant to form our perspective and help us participate with what this passage is about. So let's begin. Five things. First, what's the main point? then four themes that emerge help us participate. Well, as we look over this vision, it it does seem to have three major aspects to it. Number one, in verses one to two, you have this measuring of the temple. Then number two, in verses three to 13, you have the story of these two witnesses, what they do, what happens to them, how they're vindicated in the end. Then number three, as well, throughout the whole of the passage, there's this Kind of unique, strange, peculiar usage of numbers. So let's start by trying to unpack each of these three things. This temple imagery, uh, the symbolism of the numbers, these, the story of these witnesses, and see then, discover the main point of the passage. So we'll start in verses 1 to 2 with the temple We've seen week after week, haven't we? We really need to read Revelation biblically and symbolically. Revelation is packed, packed, packed with symbols. And these are symbols taken from 
the imagery, the accounts, the occurrences of the Old Testament. So the more we understand what, they were hap- what was happening in the Old Testament, the more we know what to do with the symbols here in Revelation. And this is true, uh, again, with the idea of measuring the temple. You can see that especially in the prophet Ezekiel. So thinking back to the prophet Ezekiel, in the beginning of that book, God's glory visibly to Ezekiel uh, leaves the temple due to the people's unrepentant idolatry. But by the end of the book, there are these promises of renewal, that God is going to return to his people. And this renewal is seen in the measuring of the temple, chapters 40 and following, and the measuring of the city in chapter 48. So let's back up for a minute and just remember the significance of these ideas of temple and city. With the risk of oversimplifying, wouldn't you agree that temple is really about the presence of God? That the temple answers the question of how can a sinful people be restored to fellowship with holy God and enjoy his presence? That's what the temple is all about. Then there's the city. The city is about the people of God. It's this idea that God does have a people. He loves, he saves, he preserves for himself. So with those things in mind, it's really interesting to note that at the end of all this measuring in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48.35 says this, And the name of the city from that time, from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. The name of the city is the Lord is there. And so we find is that these images of the temple and the city seem to come together. The city is now like a temple. The Lord is right there with his people. You know, as you read through Revelation, the exact thing seems to happen here. Uh, In Revelation, the temple and city come together. In Revelation chapter 21, we see the renewal of all things as Jesus returns. And there's this city described there. So consider Revelation 21, 22. There John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So there's no temple in this new city because the whole thing is a temple. The city is renewed as the presence of God is right there in and with and among his people. And so this imagery of Ezekiel and the rest of Revelation persuades me to believe that the idea of the temple here in Revelation 11 is is not meant to be understood as a new literal temple. Uh, After the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, it seems to me that the New Testament has no real interest in a new literal temple in literal Jerusalem. Read the book of Hebrews, and you'll see that every detail of the temple and its priests is perfected and fulfilled in Jesus. I mean, in Jesus, we have the best, the ultimate priest, the perfect sacrifice, and access to the very presence of God. He said in John 2, he is the temple. And the idea of going back to uh, anything like a literal building is somewhat repugnant for those who rejoice in the fulfillment Jesus has brought. In fact... 
The New Testament, I think, is rather clear that through Jesus, the one who is the ultimate temple, the church is now God's temple and God's city. The New Testament says this again and again so clearly. Here's one example, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and they're far from a perfect church, but he writes to them, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Church, the gathered people of God who trust themselves to Jesus Christ and what he's done, that's the temple. We see this in Revelation. We saw it back in the letters to the churches. Remember this promise Jesus gave to faithful believers in the church of Philadelphia. This is Revelation 3.12. This is amazing. Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You see that? The believer is now the temple, part of the temple, an aspect of the structure. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So to conquer is to live faithfully for Jesus through this time of tribulation, through your whole life, and the reward of that, that final reward of the, the fruit of your salvation is that you are now part of the structure of the temple in the city forever. But we see again that the true temple, the true meaning of it is God with God's people. And therefore the church is the temple. Now if you're persuaded by that, we then ask, well, what does this measuring mean? Remember in uh, Revelation 11, verse 1, he says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So the, the people are measured. What, is, what does the measuring signify? Now, there are many clues in the Old Testament, but here's a good one from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. God, again, is talking about the renewal of his people. And he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. You see how these themes work together? There it is again, the temple, the city, measured as part of renewal. And so what measurement means then is God sees and knows and is with and protects and preserves his people. He's with you to protect you. He's with you as he knows you, and he's going to keep you. And this fits uh, so perfectly here in Revelation. Remember, between, in the seals, between seal 6 and seal 7, there was this pause so that God could seal his people. There were two pictures of that, Right? He's going to keep them for himself. He's going to bring them all the way home. Then again here in the trumpets, there's a pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And it says the same thing. God knows he's going to keep his people. He's with us. He'll protect us. He'll never let us go. 
So just putting this all together now, this first theme of the, of the temple being measured, the city being measured, is this promise that God knows and is with and preserves and protects his people. Now let's think about the significance of these numbers, the significance of these numbers. So in verses 2 to 3, you have the same idea repeated twice. First in verse 2, you get the court of the temple, which seems to be uh, also the city, is trampled for 42 months. Then in verse 3, you get these witnesses prophesying for 1,260 days. Well, what on earth does this mean? Well, as usual, where do we look to unpack the symbolism of Revelation? We look to the Old Testament, and we see this theme has its source in the prophet Daniel. So if you look to Daniel chapter 12, there a messenger has come to the prophet, and he's telling Daniel about the suffering of God's people before their vindication. And so this angel speaks, this messenger, in Daniel 12, verse 7. This is what he says. Daniel writes, I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. So did you hear it? Time, one year times, two more years, half a time, three and a half years. That would be a picture of the difficulty of God's people, and at the end there'll be a picture of them being shattered, but then all things will be finished. All things will be renewed. And if you're paying attention, you're thinking, you know what, that sounded a lot like what we saw last week in Revelation 10. Remember, there's an angel there, too, taking, taking an oath about the time of suffering of God's people, but the promise of vindication in the end, and so we see here there's this image of what the time of trial for God's people looks like, three and a half years. So let's put our numbers in Revelation together. You got the court of the temple, the holy city, trampled for 42 months. I'm not good at math, but I'm pretty sure that's three and a half years. And then the witnesses are going to prophesy for 1,260 days. You know, in the ancient world, a month was 30 days. 1,260 days is 42 months, three and a half years. It's all the same. It's all the same duration. It's this time of trial for God's people. That's what the three and a half years signifies. Let's go a little deeper on this because I think it's important to understand. You may have noticed when we read about these two witnesses, they sound a little bit like a combination between Moses and Elijah, okay? Uh, You hear about the sky being shut, no rain, that's Elijah from 1 Kings. That's what happened in his ministry. You've also got water to blood. Well, that sounds familiar. That's Moses during the Exodus. So there's this combination of Elijah and Moses in these witnesses. And each of these two prophets, Moses and Elijah, has a connection to this theme of three and a half. So I want to show you. Listen to how Jesus talks about Elijah in Luke 4, Luke 4.25. Jesus says, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel during the, in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. 
Isn't it interesting? Three and a half years. It's like, it's like this time. It signifies trial and difficulty. It can happen in more literal situations, but it's also used symbolically for the whole picture. Uh, speaking of Moses, Numbers 33. Uh, now, if you go read that chapter, you'll realize it's one of the chapters you kind of skim over or even skip when you're trying to read through your Bible. But in Numbers 33, it tells the journey Moses led the people of Israel on uh, through the wilderness. And it counts up the stages of the journey through the wilderness. If you count those things up in Numbers 33, I'm pretty sure it'll come up to 42 stages. And you're thinking, uh, okay, curious, but really, who cares about 42 stages in the wilderness? Well, I think it's on John's mind a little because of what we'll see in the next chapter of Revelation. So in Revelation 12, you have this uh, fabulous kind of parable telling the story of God's people. God's people are portrayed as a woman escaping this evil dragon. So I want you to see just from one verse here where the woman, the church, is taken and for how long. Revelation 12, 6. And the woman, again, that's a church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she has, is to be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. So looking back to Numbers, we realize the wilderness signifies a time of trial where God is faithful and protects and preserves his people through difficulty. So Moses led the people 42, through 42 stations in the wilderness. And this lady, the church, how long is she there? 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Time, time, half a time. So we see, do you see? Three and a half signifies the time of suffering, trial, and tribulation for God's people. So let's put some of this together. Go back up to Revelation 11, verse 2. John is told, don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So the temple had these outer courts, which are for the Gentiles to come and worship. Strangely, John says, the inner courts are now measured, sealed, protected, but the outer courts which were for the Gentiles to come and worship, will now be trampled on by an unbelieving world. And in this imagery, the outer courts and the city are put together. They both get trampled for 42 months, three and a half years. So what does it mean that if the temple and the city represents God's people, and, and part of this temple is measured, preserved, protected, but, but the other part of it is, is left to be, is, is left vulnerable. It's trampled for a time of three and a half years. Well, it begins to make sense. God is promising his people that even though there's this, they're in this age of tribulation between when Jesus' first and second coming, this time we could call, call three and a half years, it's, it's not seven, it's not forever, it's, it's limited. This time of tribulation this time of suffering, this time of difficulty, God is saying that spiritually, his people are measured, they are safe, they will be preserved even as physically 
They're vulnerable. They'll suffer. They'll have hard times. You see, God is promising that through this age of difficulty, he will keep his people for himself, not from all suffering. He is promising he will keep us for himself through all suffering. So the temple, temple imagery signifies a safe but suffering church. And the number imagery signifies this limited time of trial where we will suffer, but spiritually, we're safe. He knows us. He keeps us. Let's look now at these two witnesses. Bunch more symbolism to unpack These witnesses are called uh, either prophets. They prophesy for 1260 days. Um, They're also olive trees and lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So what does that mean? Well, this image of olive trees comes from Zechariah 4. We looked at this months ago uh, as we were studying earlier in Revelation. Um, In Zechariah, this vision, there's this uh, lamp in the temple. And of course, it depends on oil to allow it to burn. And in this vision, there's these olive trees giving a living supply of oil to this lamp in the temple. And in the context of Zechariah, the olive trees are the priest and the king. And the oil is the Holy Spirit. So the priest and the king gives the Holy Spirit so that this lamp can burn. Who is the lampstand? John told us explicitly, Revelation 1.20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see it? The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, what does this mean? I think it's pretty clear that with John calling these, these, these uh, prophets, these witnesses, olive trees and lampstands, John is telling us that these witnesses signify the church in its witness during the time of tribulation. These two fellows are a picture of the church and its witness. Again, how long do they witness? 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. That's, that's this age, the age of tribulation. Uh, in this age, the church is to be giving faithful witness to Jesus, the witness of our mouths, the witness of our lives. And we see that witness will have a cost now, these witnesses are killed by this beast from a pit. So who's, who's the beast? I think it's worldly powers that, that hate Jesus and don't like his people. But look at this comparison between Revelation 11.7, Revelation 13.7. In Revelation 11.7, um, when these two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now compare that with Revelation 13, 7. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on, on who? The saints, and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Revelation 11, the beast conquers the witnesses. Revelation 13, the beast conquers the saints. What does that tell us? The witnesses are the saints. They're symbolic for the saints. They witness for 1260 days at the same time the city is trampled. That's the same time the woman, the church, is in the wilderness. It's the same time the beast has authority. 
Okay, so now let's put it all together. The temple, the numbers, the witnesses. The temple means God knows and sees his people. He preserves them. He keeps them. They're safe even through a time of suffering. The numbers, there is a limited time of suffering. It's three and a half. It signifies this age between Jesus' first and second coming. It's a tribulation. John says we're all partnering in together. It's a time of difficulty. So we're safe even in the midst of suffering. And then the witnesses, they speak to this theme that the church, safe, suffering, will give faithful witness to Jesus throughout this time of tribulation. Faithful witness, no matter the cost. Faithful witness to Christ in our lives with our mouths, despite the suffering it may bring. So, if we're convinced of that, there's four things now to take to heart. Four principles to, uh, that we want to have form our perspective. Encourage our lives so that we can participate in this. So here's God's word to you, his people, those who trust Christ. God will keep you through suffering. You're measured. You are known. You are seen. You will be preserved. You know, so often, right, the church can look so flawed and so weak. You want a picture of that? I'm part of it. We're part of it. But yet, over the ages, though so flawed, so weak, the church has the church has remained. The church has endured. The gospel of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, it's been preserved. There are still people who still love Jesus and still want others to know him today. And why is that? That's because God is keeping his people. It's no small thing that we woke up today trusting Jesus. It's because he's keeping us for himself. Maybe there's no more beautiful picture of this in Romans 8, 35 to 39. Let's just listen to it. This is what Paul wrote, the church, those who trust themselves to Christ. Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're measured. We're safe. That encourages us that motivates us, that gives us strength for this second perspective. The church, saved by Jesus, will witness of and for Jesus. We'll want the world to see him with our lives and hear of him and who he is and what he's done with our mouths. Back up in verses 3 to 4, when we heard about these witnesses, we were told they were the ones who stand before the Lord of the earth. You know, that question was asked back in Revelation chapter 6. Who can stand before the Lord? Who can stand? And of course, in our own selves, you know, can you stand before the Lord of the earth on your own, on your own uh, resume and your own legacy on what you've done? Can you stand? I cannot stand. 
I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm worthy of his judgment, his wrath. Who can stand? There are some who can stand. There are those who will stand. And you know who it is? It's those who are saved by Jesus Christ. It's those who believe the gospel. We can stand before the Lord of the earth because the Lord of the earth has stood for us. We remember this great picture of the gospel in Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so we see this picture of the gospel. Jesus, our prophet, the one who lived and told the truth. Jesus, our priest, the one who died for our sins to make us right with a holy God. Jesus, our king, the one who rose from the dead and reigns now. He saves his people. If you trust yourself to him, you look to his perfect life for your righteousness to make you right with God. You look to his death on a cross to earn the forgiveness of your sins. You look to his resurrection as your hope. If you trust yourself to him, you can know you're forgiven, you're loved, you're on your way to be transformed to be like him. In Christ, you can stand before the Lord of the earth because Jesus has stood for you. And as we trust him, the picture of these witnesses shows we become like him. These witnesses are olive trees. That means they're like priests. That means they're like kings. They speak. They're like prophets. And church, that's us. Didn't you hear it? Revelation 1.5. He's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. In Christ, we are royal priests who are to display the beauty of the kingdom of God in our lives and with our mouths so the world can know of Jesus. It's a glorious calling and a beautiful calling. It's also a difficult calling. You see in verse 3, we're wearing sackcloth. Uh, it's painful because there is in it a call to repentance. Sin is real. God's holiness is real. His wrath towards sin is real. We can and will be saved if we come to Christ. And if we won't, ah, oh, right? We've seen it in Revelation. Wrath has come and will come. And so there's this sackcloth, this difficulty. So what about then, you're thinking, okay, if this is us, what about these guys spitting fire, bringing drought, their enemies dying, blood and all that? Well, that's a great question. I do think we are to take it symbolically. Don't you remember as we've read through all these trumpets, haven't we seen these images in the trumpets? The way God's wrath is kind of showing itself, calling people to repent in these times, in, these, in this age that we're in. So, um, you know, we ask ourselves, is it, is it literally our call to call down fire on people? You know, it's, it's so curious to me that John, who wrote Revelation, actually tried this once. Did you know this? He actually tried this one. In Luke 9, 54, um, this Samaritan city rejects Jesus. And look what happens. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you, do you, want, to, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> 
Look at verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them. No, I don't. (laughs) I don't want you to do that at all. You know, in that same chapter, it's so fascinating. You had Luke's account of the transfiguration. Do you remember that? It's where Jesus, you know, pulls back the curtain just a little bit on his glory. Look at Luke 9, 29 to 31. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Well, guess who they were? Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Down in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. We have it very clearly. Moses and Elijah ultimately testify of Jesus, of Jesus. And so this imagery of the wrath that comes as God's word is spoken is a picture of the incredible power of the gospel in the word of God. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's coming just loaded with grace to save those who believe. But it's also coming with judgment on those who reject it. Jeremiah said this, Jeremiah 23, 29 or the Lord says it through Jeremiah, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So as the church speaks the word of God in the gospel, clearly and explicitly, it's powerful. There's grace in it, and there's judgment around it. And those who reject the church and its witness will know the judgment of a holy God for their sins. So what do we see? The church is protected by Jesus. The church will witness of Jesus, will witness like Jesus. The third perspective, the church will suffer like Jesus, will suffer. You see this picture of what's going to come, I think, more explicitly Uh, In the end, closer to when Jesus returns, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on God's people and conquer them and kill them. You know that word conquer? Jesus is telling faithful Christians in those seven churches, be an overcomer, conquer. And here the overcomers are overcome. It It looks like evil wins. It looks like all is lost. You see that in verses 8 to 10, these world systems just hating the church. This idea of not letting them be buried is just uh, this picture of despising, of mocking. And it seems like the world wins, and John gives us these pictures of what the world is like. Sodom, that city that deserves God's judgment. Egypt, that place that beats down God's people. Jerusalem, the city that hated Jesus so much. It had him crucified. That crucified. They hate Jesus. They'll hate his people. That's a picture of this beast. And they party over the destruction of the church. The text says the church had been a torment to them. What does that mean? Hopefully, I mean, read, read the epistles. Hopefully we are not a torment to them in being obnoxious 
or self-righteous or worldly like them. No, what is meant to be a torment is our faithful example. Because what is more tormenting to a guilty conscience than a faithful example and a true witness? So the church will suffer. That's what three and a half is about. You're safe. You're protected. You're to witness of Jesus, for Jesus, and in many ways, sometimes slight ways, sometimes horrible ways, the church will suffer for that witness. But here's the final point. It's meant to be really encouraging. The church that is measured by Jesus, the church that... um, The church that witnesses of Jesus, the church that suffers like Jesus, is also the church that will be vindicated like Jesus. They'll be vindicated like Jesus. And that's seen in verses 11 to 14. Uh, You you know, their witness was three and a half years in this passage. Their defeat, their trampling, it's only three and a half days. Did you see that? It's just three and a half days. I don't think that's literal, but what, what it means is it's short. It's limited, and then the tables begin to turn, and then, and then the tipping point comes, and you have this reference to Ezekiel 37 and that story of dry bones coming alive. You have this picture of revival, of renewal of God's people that somehow at the end, even though the church seems to be totally trampled all over the world, there's this work of God, and the church kind of rises from the ashes, and the picture is they're vindicated by God himself For all to see. God will validate his people, avenge his people, recognize, reward, comfort, save, heal, satisfy his people, and all will see it. What does this look like in detail? I don't really know, but it will be obvious. You see in these verses that those who witness it are compelled to give glory to God. Maybe that means that as God vindicates his church, as the church awakens, maybe it means repentance. We can hope for that and pray for that, want that. Probably in context, I think it is more like the Egyptians who had to recognize the power of God during the plagues, forced to recognize his reality, uh, but were still left unbelieving. But the point is this, God vindicates his people. God vindicates his people. You can be a faithful witness in hard times because you're safe and you'll be satisfied. Do you see the bookends? You're safe, you're measured, you're loved, you're kept. You'll be vindicated. So right here then in the middle, be a faithful witness no matter the cost. It's just three and a half. It doesn't last forever. It's not the end of the story, but it's just just three and a half, this time of difficulty. Be a faithful witness for Christ and how you live and what you say because you're safe. He's got you, and he's going to vindicate you in the end. So as we come to the end of our passage this morning, we see the end of all things is just around the corner. We get an earthquake, and in Revelation, that seems to signify, right, the beginning of the end. There's one in the sixth seal with the coming of final judgment right after that. There's one here, or there's one later in the seventh bowl. The end is near, and there's one right here before the seventh trumpet. And we see that as, uh, as these things come to pass, uh, Jesus' return is right around the corner. So let's conclude. You know, in a way, this text would be easier if it was literal. 
It would stay in the realm of the curious, and maybe we could watch it on TV someday. But as we realize the truth of its symbol, it becomes convictional. It becomes for you and for me. Have you trusted the gospel? Have you repented and turned to the God who made you through Jesus Christ? And if you have, are you willing to live as his faithful witness, faithful in your life, faithful in your mind and your heart, faithful with your mouth? Uh, That'll have a cost. That'll have a cost. But the cost is, is limited and God, God will keep you for himself. He keeps his people. And in the end, you'll be vindicated. Faithfully witnessing for Jesus is always worth it. That's what John's saying. Faithful witness for Jesus is always worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the incredible beauty of this text, all its imagery all its passion, and Lord, we pray that we as your church would be encouraged by who we are in Christ, royal priests and priestesses, uh, faithful witnesses. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful in our character, in our conduct, in our method, in our manner. We want to be faithful in telling people about you, who you are, what you've done Help us, Lord. Encourage us with the knowledge that we are safe, we belong to you. Encourage us with the hope that we will be vindicated in the end and that any suffering for you is worth it. Give us strength, Lord, to participate in what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com folfcrc.com